I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, the editor with your weekly helping of politics. The interesting thing I think about Parliament and, and the Brexit crunch that's approaching is that there are, you know, 10 options, none of which are likely, but one of which has to happen. And culture. The best kind of um, heritage drama or costume drama that we do doesn't tend to be the ones that stick to the rules too closely. And this week we speak to Ivan Hewitt, who's written a superb piece in our latest issue, that's the September one, on what happens when philosophy meets music. And a bit more specifically, he tells us what he thinks classical aficionados get wrong about pop. Much of the meaning uh, and enjoyment of this music arises out of an interesting admittedly obscure interaction between the properties of the music itself and its setting. More of that later, but first I'm here with Alex Dean, our politics watcher, and Samir Rahim, who's the culture editor. And first to you, Alex. Um, This week, Parliament comes back physically, but in a sense, Parliament's coming back into the conversation in other ways as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think Parliament's been squeezed out uh, in the past, and and that's not always been a good thing, uh, and it's not always been a healthy thing for our democracy. There's only so much longer, though, that Parliament can kind of remain on the sidelines, and we've seen it roaring back as we approach the Brexit crunch. Um, That crunch is really going to start to hit now as Parliament returns from recess, and uh, we get the meaningful vote and things like that on the Brexit deal, um, and MPs are really going to have their say. The parliamentary arithmetic is incredibly tight in all of this, and so every MP matters. Um, And it is the case that after all these jokes about the meaning of meaningful that there really is going to be, you think, a single vote at some point and at what sort of point when we'll be able to tell whether Theresa May's got away with it or not? Basically, yes. Uh, This is a point of real confusion, even amongst uh, experts and kind of close Westminster watchers. Um, I read a piece yesterday uh, by a real expert arguing there's going to be two parliamentary votes, one on the withdrawal agreement and one on the not legally binding, uh, but still important political framework for the future. What's clear is that MPs will have a say, uh, and I'm not sure the government could withstand and survive a result where MPs voted against it. Equally, though, it's not clear what would happen if the government fell uh, and and whether MPs would vote against it. There's a huge deal of uncertainty in the system. So we know something's going to happen, but we don't know what it is. Do we know when? No, (laughs) we we know it's it's coming, um, but there's, there's a huge risk that increases as the timer ticks down of no deal but then there's a chance that MPs seeing the no deal outcome will kind of scurry to avoid it. The interesting thing I think about Parliament and and the Brexit crunch that's approaching is that there are 
you know, 10 options, none of which are likely, but one of which has to happen. But when you kind of draw out the flow chart and you kind of try and predict what's going to happen and draw out the steps, a roadblock falls down in everyone that you pursue. Yet one of those outcomes must take place. So it's kind of an interesting bit of, uh, you know, theory, parliamentary theory, trying to work out which unlikely option is actually going to end up taking place. Alex, no one seems to like the Chequers deal. So the Remainers um, think that it goes um, against their interests. The Leavers don't like it either. But I wonder when it comes to the crunch, the people who are in favour of a softer Brexit may well, as they did earlier this year, side with Theresa May simply because they fear what would happen if she fell and you would get Boris or even Jacob Rees-Mogg um, as Prime Minister. So, I mean, are we ultimately going to see the survival of Theresa May yet again because the other options are, are just too scary? I think that's one of the possibilities. Um, something that you were saying at the start that I just picked back up on is this interesting idea of how Chequers is hated by both Remainers and Brexiteers. And there's that famous Margaret Thatcher quote that the problem with standing in the middle of the road is that you get hit by traffic from both sides and in making her position softer to appease the Remainers and harder to appease the Brexiteers it seems like Theresa May might have appeased neither of them <laughs> uh, but would would Remainers really bring down the government um you know it's, it's one of the biggest questions in politics today not many of them would would have to rebel um they might not see it as bringing down the government so much as putting the positive spin on it from their point of view voting against the deal could precipitate an extension of article 50 um a, you know a people's vote is what everyone's calling the second referendum now um so it's an incredibly high stakes gamble though because the possibility of no deal and the possibility of a second referendum go up together <laughs> because the more there's a chance of no deal the more there's a chance that parliament kind of calls the whole thing off so it's an incredibly high stakes gamble i guess the thing that strikes me is particularly fraught about it as a balancing act is that the um litmus test increasingly for each side is whether the other side is unhappy and only when they're unhappy can you be happy and we saw that didn't we with the rebellion over i can't remember what it was now the customs union or something um uh, jacob Rees-Mogg demanded some amendments uh he got them and because he'd got them then there were rebels on the other side. It could be that there's that calculation going on all autumn now. I think that's right. I think you've touched there on the incredible tribal nature of our politics now and how Brexit is this remarkable thing where it's simultaneously incredibly technical and all about the process and the details, but also speaks to MPs' you know, consciences in a way that uh, almost no other issue can. And if the other side likes something, it, it means that you have to not like it, and it, it's a clash like that. OK, let's... Uh step away from the uh, grubby uh, palace of varieties and uh, talk about um, a new adaptation, um, Samir, of Vanity Fair. Have you seen any of it yet? Yes, I saw the first episode uh, last week. So it's pretty good so far. Um, it's in the nine o'clock uh, Sunday evening Downton Abbey slot. And I think unfortunately that slightly stymies it. The best kind of um, heritage drama or costume drama that we do um, in Britain, uh, doesn't tend to be the ones that stick to the rules too closely, the ones that sort of throw things up in the air and try and reinvigorate or reimagine the story. With Vanity Fair, it's a comic and, in a way, quite a superficial story. And what I found with this adaptation, um, the first episode at least, it was that it was trying a little too much to get our sympathy with the main character, Becky Sharp. I wonder whether she could be a little nastier, a little bit more 
more unpleasant. But maybe that's going to come in in later episodes. Um, give us some that you think, um, it sounds like you're not thinking of this as a mould-breaking kind of thing. What sort of period dramas have you enjoyed? I mean, did you like the Wolf Hall thing? I thought Wolf Hall was brilliant. In fact, in many ways, it was better than better than the books. Um, I think that's because they created a deliberately um, artificial aesthetic. They didn't try to create, uh, recreate Tudor, Tudor Britain. They saw it as something that was through the eyes, as it were, through the music, which was a sort of modern amalgam of uh, Tudor music and modern music, and the sort of psychological intensity of Mark Rylance's performance. Um, it was definitely a sort of um, psychological drama that happened to be set in the Tudor times. Um, some of the most successful ones, I was just uh, thinking Barry Lyndon, which is the great Kubrick film of another Thackeray novel, um, was an absolutely fantastic movie and adaptation. And I think it's because it caught something of the real artificiality of Thackeray's style. So it has the narrative voice, um, voiceover. Um, it has uh, grand scenes, but also chopped together quite quickly. And I think that was a slight problem with the Vanity Fair, I think, on Sundays, that the advert breaks broke the comic momentum. As soon as you were getting up, something quite exciting you had to have an advert break and, mm. and then so it, it get it get it got a little bit sort of chopped and changed samir as someone who doesn't watch costume dramas all the time you know i know much less about this kind of thing than you do it seems from an outside perspective as though every period costume drama is jane austen <laughs> is, is there a huge tendency towards jane austen in these things well there's a number of reasons for that um the principal one is that jane austen is one of the best, if not the best, writers of dialogue um, in the English novel. So you can just take huge chunks and put them um, put them on screen, and and they work. They work brilliantly. Um, and her narratorial voice is very sort of distant and slightly sort of arch, whilst Thackeray's is very sort of um, emboldened and interfering, which doesn't work necessarily in, in the modern aesthetic. Um, Jane Austen's does so well. Um, also because um, their romances and their characters you can easily identify with, whilst um, Thackeray is, is, is a sharper, sort of nastier character. But, but again, talking about the sort of recreating uh, Jane Austen, a film like Clueless, Alicia Silverstone in 1994, was a version of Emma that's set um, in uh, Los Angeles. And that's a brilliant uh, adaptation because it, it sort of takes the same social mores but to put, puts them in a different context similarly Whit Stillman's uh, Last Days of Disco um, more elusive to Jane Austen takes a sort of Jane Austen like comedy but puts it puts it in the, the area of Studio uh, 54 which again works very well and what else do we have I mean in the BBC British tradition there's been a lot over the years of Charles Dickens I guess um, strong characters and Quite recently, we had War and Peace, didn't we? Yeah, I thought that was a real terrible failure, I'm afraid. I thought it was um, sexed up pointlessly, um, and you'd never really got a sense of um, the depth of that novel. But again, how do, you, how do you transfer something that's so long into something so... There's a lot of plot to get through, so is there enough time 
um, when you're adapting something like War and Peace to give it the kind of attention that each character needs, which is another reason, Alex, why Jane Austen is so good, because her novels are just about long enough to squeeze into two or two and a half hour uh, film. And if you can do it over five or six episodes, as the 1995 um, Pride and Prejudice did, that's, that's absolutely perfect. How many episodes did they try and cram War and Peace into? I can't remember. There was a 1970s BBC one with Anthony Hopkins, which did it in something like 25 episodes. Was that better? Um, it was... Uh, it's more traditional. Um, it was good. It was good. But it, it did have a slightly stuffy sense of um, we can't film anything outside. Everything's in a studio. So it, it looks a bit dated. So I'll thank Alex and also Samir for that before we step out of the world of costume drama and into the world of music with Samir, who's been talking to Ivan Hewitt, who in our latest uh, magazine edition has been reviewing a book by the philosopher Roger Scruton. And uh, so let's go over and meet Ivan now with Samir. Ivan, in this month's Prospect magazine, you've got a brilliant review of the philosopher Roger Scruton's new book, Music as an Art, which I see you've got in your hand there. In the book, Scruton takes up the somewhat unfashionable position. You could say that classical music, and more specifically Western classical music, is the supreme musical form. Is he right? Well, it's an easy view to fall into, because the tradition is such a magnificent and awe-inspiring thing, and it's so multifarious and varied within itself. Um that one could easily fall into thinking that. Also, it has uh, this extraordinary historical dynamic, which the other uh, great classical traditions of the world seem not to have. I say seem because they're not quite as static as they appear to be. Um, but the, the incredible historical dynamic of classical music is, in a way, part of its attraction. You know, it, it, it's almost as if there's an unseen hand pushing it from behind into the future all the time, and, and it seems to push harder and harder. Um, in certain pieces from later in the tradition, one feels that accumulated pressure. You know, you, you feel the in enormous weight of an accumulated past and in some way, in some mysterious way, you feel the future beckoning as well. And those two things put together, plus the extraordinary uh, syntactical elaboration of the music, uh, do create an overwhelming impression. Whether that uh, qualifies it as being the supreme musical uh, tradition uh, that's ever been seen uh, in the world, uh, I, I wouldn't. I would hesitate to say that. I, I think there are other criteria of excellence which we may get onto. Um, so, what is it about the classical music, Western classical music tradition, that um, has enabled it to be uh, so creative and so um, has so much forward momentum in it? Well, I suppose one thing is a massive surplus income of, of Western societies, uh, which uh, allowed the extraordinary idea of a music divorce from social purpose to come into being. Um, an awful lot of what we call classical music actually dates from before that. You know, it's, it's now quite commonplace for people to listen to Renaissance music, uh, Baroque music, when music was still indeed attached to ritual or religious or social purpose but increasingly as you get into the enlightenment and you get institutions of of autonomous music developing you know concert halls journals um newspaper reviews um then this extraordinary notion that that music is an autonomous thing floating in a realm of ideas 
uh, comes into being. A, a view now much under attack, of course, by, by musical scholars these days who, who claim that it's really just an ideological construct. Um, uh, Do they have but, a point? Well, I think, I think ideology can have an extraordinary way of conjuring a reality into being. And I think what, what, what may have started as a in a way a, an attempt by the rising middle class to, to define a space for itself uh, and and obviously in its attempts to ape the aristocracy its music was to begin with rather aristocratic in its in its gestures and, and means but as time went on a, a, a genuine bourgeois music developed you know uh, a part of the essence of bourgeois music is it's always rebelling against its bourgeois origins uh, and so you have this extraordinary uh, uh, a body of music created which seems to uh, you know thumb its nose at the society that 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 sustains it our view of classical music now seems to be still that it is elitist or rarefied or associated with a certain sort of class prerogative it seems that scruton sometimes quite likes that um but also how helpful is that when we're trying to sort of you know, open up the tradition to other people who maybe who don't know much about it or um is it is it is it off-putting to do you think difficult question that because i sometimes feel that uh the uh rather high-born aristocratic gesture that's almost encoded in certain sorts of classical music you know the um particularly the baroque forms the classical forms it might actually be part of its appeal, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, I think there's a parallel here with dance, you know, where it's often said that, that classical ballet uh, encodes in its in its movements a, 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 a bygone era of social relations, you know, strictly hierarchical and so forth. Um, but that seems to be a large part of its appeal, particularly to little girls who want to take up ballet. You know, they all want to be princesses, don't they? Um, and uh, I think the the the, the imaginative conjuration of a form of being which en encodes things like uh, courtliness, civility, uh, of a rather elaborate kind, can actually be appealing in, in an era which so seems to worship casualness in, in every possible sphere. You know, it's, it's like a whiff of something extraordinarily exotic. Um, I think these days part of the appeal of classical music is that it's uh, not unlike world music, is that it opens a, opens a door to a vanished world of feeling. Talking about sort of musical modernism, which is one of Roger Scruton's uh, bait noirs, I think pretty much it ends for him at Benjamin Britten. Is that is that fair? Um, I have to say that when you do go to classical concerts, you know, you go to the proms, for example, if there will be a modern piece, but usually it's sandwiched between two older pieces, almost as if, um, you know, you need you need a bit of roughage and it's good for you. But but the other stuff is what you really have come to come to listen to. Uh, so I wonder whether. Um, He's he's onto something somehow. Why is it that sort of modern, uh, uh, a lot of modern classical music seems to lack the instinctive appeal both of the older classical forms and indeed, as we'll come on to, modern pop music. Well, in his book, Scruton takes up the cudgels again. You know, against um, a particular form of modernism, as as expressed by uh, Arnold Schoenberg and his circle, which. Uh, and, and that, that's rooted in a certain vision of, of modern music which takes constructivism as, a, as its leading theme, if you like. It, it, it's rooted in the idea that the old grammar has become somehow exhausted and infested with cliché. You know, as Schoenberg put it, the diminished seventh has become banal. You know, so we can't use it or, or its, any of its cousins 
anymore. So we, he felt a need to posit a whole new grammar that would perforce eliminate all those things. Um, now, that's really only one face of modernism. Uh, you could say it's part of the essence of the high modernists in music as in the other arts that looking backwards and attempting to recuperate tradition is, is part of its essence, actually. And, and you see that uh, in the neoclassical works of Schoenberg. You see it in the whole career of Stravinsky. And that's a, that's a very vigorous strain still uh, in modern music. Um, to go back to your question, uh, a lot of modern music is, it's true, self-defeatingly complex and uh, does indeed rest on a sort of illusion, which, which Scruton does nail. Uh, uh, true, uh, that's true, that when we listen to a piece of music, we're recuperating its deep structure somehow uh, it, in defiance of the baffling surface. And I think Scruton's right to poo-poo that. It doesn't work that way. And often when we enjoy, if we enjoy, a piece of Schoenberg, it's because we, our ears work in defiance of the composer's intention. We don't go rummaging for the hidden 12-note structure. We notice on the surface patterns of recurring similarity. Uh, and so we, it may be that we give the music a meaning that the composer didn't intend. But that's okay, actually. I, I, I don't mind that. Um, Is it asking the listener to do just a lot more work? Yes, which seems... Uh, um, a sort of arrogance on the part of the composer, and modernism is, is guilty of a certain arrogance, I suppose, you know, re which reached its apogee in a figure like uh, Yanis Xenakis, um, who demanded of his listeners that they master certain areas of higher mathematics, you know, before they dared to approach his music, which is an absurdity. But in any case, you don't need to. Xenakis's music, uh, the, the best of it, is uh, extraordinarily approachable on a very visceral level, actually. What one notices surface connections, and one warms to, in the music, to age-old categories, contrast, similarity, progression, um, categories that you, can, that you can read into the surface of the music without undue difficulty. Comparing to something like the novel form, um, we do have experimental novels around. You also have novels which pretty much ape the 19th century form and people read them and still find them enjoyable and they win prizes. Um, it seems to be that uh, all those things that happen to the novel are still churning around and are in, are in conversation with each other. Would it be fair to say that um, if one were to write a symphony in, in, in the form of a 19th century composer, it would just be dismissed as something um, pointless or, or banal? It wouldn't be dismissed, uh, I think. Um, not at all. I, I mean, Schoenberg's prediction that the diminished seventh has become banal, I think it's turned out to be wrong, actually. If you use it cleverly, you can make it seem very newly minted. Um, I think the condition of modern music uh, is is rather like the condition of modern literature, as you describe it. And it's, it's a swirl of contradictory currents. Uh, the old modernism certainly survives. Um, some would say that's only because it's on a permanent life support of subsidy. Um, but when I go to concerts... That's probably I, Roger's views. I think it is. I think he feels if, if, if that subsidy were turned off, it would, it would vanish almost overnight. Um, but I think, I, I think the same is true for quite a lot of classical music as a whole, actually. That, I, mean, I think it's an illusion to think that, um, that there was a, a golden age when, when classical music, because of its uh, innate wonderful qualities, was self-supporting. You know, it, it's always required, rather like opera, subsidy from some direction. Uh, or another. When I go to concerts of what you might call latter-day modernists, 
uh, I see, I think, genuinely healthy audiences. Um, it is true that what now is called modern music really has very little to do with what the pioneers of a century ago, like Schoenberg, were doing. Um, nobody, I think, now uh, follows his constructivist line. I, I, I can't, it's very hard to think of a single composer who is busy constructing new grammars of music. That doesn't really happen. I think that's turned out to be a boy's toy, you know. It's just very interesting that as more and more women get involved as composers, uh, that kind of curious, uh, rather arrogant turning away from the realities of music is, seems to be fading, rather, you know. And the, what, what we find now is uh, symphonies which do indeed, you know, s sit very happily inside a key, um, uh, they, they don't obey the, the, the niceties of tonal grammar uh, always, or they obey bits of it. Uh, but it's full of old, recognizable sonorities, certainly. Um, but you'll find that cheek by jowl with, with pieces which use new technology, um, uh, of, of a kind familiar to any pop musician, which is one reason why you know, there's a whole area at, at the margins of modern music which, which blurs into the, the more left-field areas of, of pop music. Similarly with jazz, you know, it's, um, there are certain jazz musicians like Bruno Hein and you, you don't know quite where they belong, you know. Is he a sort of avant-gardist uh, um, or is he a sort of playful uh, improvising jazz musician? Speaking about pop music there, and that's another thing that Scruton writes about, um, and there's some rather entertaining swipes at Mary J. Blige and, and Nirvana in the book. Um, but in his judging of these um, bands and these singers, using the same aesthetic criteria you would have Schubert, Schubert or Mozart, or is he just sort of missing the point? I think he is, um, in the sense that much of the meaning uh, and enjoyment of this music arises out of an interesting and admittedly obscure interaction between the properties of the music itself and its setting. You know, I mean, illustrated most obviously, I suppose, in the fact that a, a pop video is is just as riveting often as, as the sound on its, uh, more so than the sound on its own. You know, the, the visual aspect, the, the, the presentation of the performers, the, the way it assumes a certain uh, importance in forming a certain kind of group identity, all these things loom much larger than the disinterested, distanced appreciation of, a, of, a, of an autonomous aesthetic object, which a pop song certainly is not. Yes, and also you can you're allowed to move around to pop music in the way that you're not sort of allowed to uh, when you're at a classical concert. The proms sort of people sway a little bit when they're standing, moving around. But if one were to start sort of dancing or moving around, it, it would it would seem to break all sorts of conventions. That well, I mean, even clapping yeah. know, produces uh, angry correspondence in the papers, you know. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, one has to remember that at the premiere of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. At the famous moment when the timpani burst into the scherzo, a lot of young men in the audience leapt to their feet and cheered, apparently. Now, if you were to do that now, you know, you'd be hustled to the exit. Um, so uh, I think the, the suppression of bodily movement is, it goes hand in hand, doesn't it, with the idea that this is, this is a self-sufficient, autonomous realm, not only, not only divorced from the society that feeds it, uh, supports it, but also divorce from the body of the listener it, it it has to be somehow converted into a purely mental phenomenon scruton um 
tries to limn this with a sort of glory. You know, he says that the whole benef- the whole glory of classical music is that you that it creates, as it were, a virtual dance that one moves mentally in sympathy with the music, um, which is quite a fetching analogy in a way. But what what I what is left unanswered, I suppose, is is why that should be superior to a real dance. No, uh, what 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 raises that up, as it were, compared to the real thing? Ivan, you began as a classical music critic, which you still are, of course, but then you did also start um, writing about jazz. And I was wondering whether you had to develop a different kind of idiom, develop a different kind of ear for a, a different kind of music. Well, the ear was a bit there already, uh, I hope, <laughs> in the sense that my father was a great jazz enthusiast of a rather quite old-fashioned kind. You know, he stopped at bebop, really. In fact, he didn't even make it that far. Um, um, but it, it sort of attuned my ear to the sound world. Uh, and um, so when I started going more seriously to, to jazz gigs, I was rather keen not to develop a distinctly different tone of voice. I thought I would, because I would catch myself in the act, you know, and it felt a bit fake somehow. Um, I think a different tone of voice did emerge in just willy-nilly, you know, uh, without me trying it. Just because so many things about the experience are so profoundly different. The way, for example, musicians come onto stage and the kind of warming up and tuning up often blends imperceptibly into the into the first number, you know, in, mixed up with a bit of schmoozing the audience, you know, uh, which is quite entertaining. And you, you really have to mention these things because it, it somehow tunes you or sets you up in a certain way for the when the music itself begins you know and then of course um the personality of the performers is often much more vividly expressed in the jazz world and in in a very conversational and uh, immediate way um, particularly in the more free improvisational um forms of jazz where the writer rather enjoyably is, is is as free of the past and the conventions as the performers in a funny way you you you're reacting as spontaneously as they are in a way and uh, they're, they're wonderfully easy to write actually a review of of um free jazz musician like like john butcher or um Derek bailey when, when he was still alive um uh, is, is a wonderful freedom actually uh, i enjoy it very much and can you get up and dance at the jazz <laughs> uh, I would. I <laughs> there have been moments. I hope to God that no one's got a camera on, you know, because like 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 many musical people, I seem to be a very bad dancer. It's a curious fact, particularly about classical musicians, that they are so often terrible dancers. Um, might Roger Scruton turn out to be actually a rather good dancer? Uh, I wonder. I mean, he does love rock around the clock, doesn't he? He he, he loves Bill Haley and the Comets and, and other early rock and roll uh, figures. So perhaps he is. Thank you, Ivan. My pleasure. That was Ivan Hewitt there speaking to Samir Rahim. And you can uh, read Ivan's review of Roger Scruton's book on music on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. Or, of course, you can read it in the September issue of the magazine, which is on sale now in all reputable newsagents. This time, we're asking in our cover package whether it's time for Israel and Palestine to opt for a one-state solution. Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark. The producer is Jay Elwes. And as I mentioned, you can read Ivan's piece and much more besides on culture, politics and the arts on our website, 
prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice our subscription rates are very reasonable. Be sure to tune in next week to the Prospect Podcast. <laughs>